the title of the message is The Character of Our King. The Character of Our King. You know, we can get so excited about Christmas, and we should. And it's great that it's a season of love and giving with family, friends, etc. That's all great. It's awesome. But we need to remember that what we're really celebrating is the incarnation. What does that mean? It means God becoming flesh and living among us. We're really called to, to remember that God loves us so unbelievably much that he sent his son. Bind to flesh, living out his life here on earth for those approximately 33 years, a sinless life, perfect life, and yet the world killed him, rejected him. But it was all part of God's plan. God knew. God knows. And we need to understand and really focus on the significance of this king we call Jesus. A king to rescue us from the wrath of a holy God. Talk about that a little bit today. Someone who is willing and able to step forward on our behalf. Someone who knows all about you and all about me and he loves us anyway. Someone who does for us what there was no way possible that we could do it for ourselves. And one who is committed enough to each and every single one of us to change us from the inside out. That's the kind of king we needed. And that's the kind of king that our Father sent. Primary text this morning that I'll get back to eventually, just so you know we will get back to it, is in Isaiah 9, verse 6. Isaiah was a prophet lived approximately 750 years before Jesus was born. And we're going to look a little bit about the turmoil that was going on in the times that he was prophesying. You may see some similarities to where we're living today. And he prophesied these words in Isaiah 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. He'll be called Mighty God. He'll be called the Everlasting Father, and he'll be called the Prince of Peace. In those four titles, we get a glimpse into the character of our King. And we're going to return to this wonderful prophecy, but... First, I want to go ahead and establish the absolute necessity for this kind of king. The absolute necessity of God's plan of salvation. And we're going to start in Romans. One thing about Romans and many of the other letters that Paul wrote... If you read his letters to the churches, you'll see, you know, he certainly loves the churches and he loves the people. But you also learn that he doesn't mince words. His preaching and teaching probably wouldn't be a lot like we hear out of a lot of our preachers and teachers and evangelists today on television and many churches. This watered-down, sugar-coated message. 
He just basically tells it like it is. And we're going to look at a little bit of that. We're going to look at starting in Romans 1, verses, verse 14 through 17. And he's starting out as he does in all of his books in his introduction. At the end of his introduction, he changes gears dramatically. And starting in verse 14, I am obligated both to the Greeks and to the non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish, and that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentiles. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. When you look at those verses, and you can leave that scripture up there if you would. When you look at those verses, there's just some things I want to mention and we're going to move on. But notice Paul feels an obligation. Because of his calling, because of his understanding and knowledge of who God is and, and who Jesus is. Took him a long time to get there, but when he did, couldn't be stopped. An obligation that we should all have to continue to share the gospel. Paul's life was transformed. If we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, our life has been transformed. And it's in the process of being transformed. It's a process that's not going to stop. We're all on this continuum that goes on and on until Jesus comes back or we go home to be with the Lord. But there should be a transformation taking place. And he feels obligated to share it. And he says he's eager to preach the gospel. You know, I don't want to make a bigger deal out of it than it maybe is, but Boy, there's a lot of preaching going on out there that has nothing to do with the gospel. All this, we can be whatever we want to be, and all this stuff that if we just rise up in a flesh, and it's garbage. We can be what we can be because of Christ and who He is in us and the plans that He has for our life. It's not about what we can do in our own strength. Man, we think we can build something of importance, whether it's in our work or relationships, whatever, but without the Lord, it's all dung, it's all worthless. It means nothing of eternal value. So he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel. That's what he wants to preach. He wants to preach the gospel, the simple message that we are all sinners we are deserving of the wrath of God, the punishment, the, the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserved. But in the gospel, there's a better message. There's a message of hope that could be accomplished by no one other than Jesus. And yet, that's what he wants to preach. The birth, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and all that it accomplished for all who will believe. And he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You know, if you've stepped out in faith to share Jesus with someone, you can get shot down pretty quick. You can get ridiculed pretty quick. You can get made fun of pretty quick. And if you aren't careful, we just shut up because I don't want to experience that again. And we almost become ashamed of stepping out in faith and sharing the good news of the gospel. Paul's saying, I'm not ashamed to share the gospel, not even in Rome. 
this, this power center of the world. I'm, gonna, I'm not ashamed to bring this simple message, the gospel. Why? Why isn't he ashamed? He goes on and says it right away. Because in that gospel message is the power of God for everyone who believes. The power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. It, it, we take these things and we read these words and, and I think we just lose the power and the emphasis and the, 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 the ability to do something supernatural. By these, the power is in the gospel. And he says, I want you to share the gospel. Go into all the world and share the gospel. Make disciples. Share the gospel. And he says, that's why. That's why I'm not ashamed. You can make fun of me all you want. You can reject me. You can beat me. And in Paul's case, man, he, he experienced about everything you can experience in terms of persecution. He was stoned. He was beaten. He was whipped. He was flogged. You name it. Not ashamed of the gospel, because in it is the power of salvation for all who believe. And it's important to know that there is a contingency attached to it or a requirement attached to it. You have to believe for it to become yours, for it to change you. And it reveals the righteousness of God. If you look at that phrase and, and see what it all means, it, it tells it's telling us it reveals the righteousness of God, it reveals the plan of justification that God has for our salvation. It reveals his plan for righteousness. God has a plan. God had a plan, a perfect plan. You know, the plans of man just will not succeed when it comes to salvation. You know, the law was in place for the Jewish people, and it wasn't there. It didn't save a single person. Matter of fact, it proved that they couldn't be saved by works. Whatever our plan is, whatever your way of thinking you're going to get into heaven, if it doesn't involve faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, His death, burial, and resurrection, your plan is not going to work. No matter how good your works are, no matter what you've done, if we haven't accepted Christ, we will experience eventually the fullness of God's wrath in hell. Lots of Apparently nice people, good people. That could be their destination if they've not accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. For all of those who believe, the faith for those who believe. He's spending all his time talking about salvation. The question should come up in our minds, from what? And this is where Paul makes a switch and transition from verse 17 to verse 18. And he doesn't sugarcoat it at all. He says, for the wrath of God. Now, when it says for, for, what's that mean? It means it's, this is the reason for what he just said. This is why he's not ashamed of spreading the gospel. This is why he is eager to preach. This is why he wants to get the message out. It's because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known, why is this wrath there? Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, he, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature 
have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that all were without excuse. Paul has this drive, this desire to share and preach the gospel, to see people get saved because of the gospel message, saved by faith and believing in the gospel, because he knows the wrath of God is going to come upon all unrighteousness and all ungodliness. And, God, and Paul, if you want to, I encourage you to read. He starts here in Romans 1, verse 18, and he goes all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, making the case about how evil man is, how deserving of God's wrath he is. You get to verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody. He makes the case like a prosecuting attorney, and there is no rebuttal that will carry water. And he tells us that the wrath of God abides on all unrighteousness and all ungodliness. And going on from verse 20, you'll read in a few verses, verses 24 to 28. I'm not going to go through them, but you'll read these words three different times. Three different times. He says, God gave them over. God gave them over. Over to what? Evil, sin, their own devices. I believe Paul is saying, and there's an urgency in his spirit, because the wrath of God is already present on all kinds of ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now, when we think of the wrath of God, we may think only of the wrath of God going to be poured out on, in hell. I think if he would look at the wrath of God being poured out maybe in our day-to-day where God simply is removing his hand of blessing and his hand of protection on all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And as you read the following verses, it gets worse and worse and worse as he turns them over. All kinds of ugly things begin to take place. It's like the, the conscience becomes so seared, he removes his protection and there is no end to the pit of depth or depth of the evil that man participate in, turn to. He uses the present tense when he says, is being revealed. Study that out. Get your... your Concordances and all that stuff, and do a little bit of looking at what the Greek says. I don't pretend to understand and know Greek, so you all know that. But it's a present tense in the Greek language, meaning it's already happening. Paul understands that. There's a future wrath and a present wrath, if you would. I don't want to experience either one. When God removes his hand of protection and a blessing. And this can happen to individuals. It can happen to cultures. It can happen to nations where he removes his hands of protection. You begin to look and see things happen and you look at it and say, how can this possibly happen? What can people possibly be thinking? How could a nation go to this extreme to, in this direction? How could this possibly happen? Maybe it's because his hand of protection and blessing is being lifted. And we don't know when it's going to happen. 
God makes it clear. Paul makes it clear in his teaching. There comes a time when God says, okay, I've given you every possible chance you can imagine. Still rejected. I believe that's part of his urgency to preach the gospel. We don't know when that place is reached. And he says, against all godlessness and unrighteousness, I don't think he is just repeating himself and meaning the same thing. When he says all ungodlessness, all godlessness, I believe he's talking about the irreverence towards God. He doesn't exist. He's not who he says he was. He can't do what he says he is. It's a joke. Idolatry. If you look at the first four of the Ten Commandments, if you want to look at Exodus chapter 20, you can see the Ten Commandments. The first four deal with our relationship with God. The, the godlessness. Look at the last six. They deal with relationships with people, how we treat people, all unrighteousness. He's looking, and just think when it says all ungodliness, all unrighteousness, every thought, every word, every action that's ungodly and unrighteous. There's a possibility of him lifting his protection. And then he says, man, suppress the truth. You know, he, he tells us clearly there, we're all without excuse. Everybody knows. He's revealed himself in some ways to everyone through creation, power of God. He says, everyone can see if they want to see. And that truth being suppressed, truth being like a dam being held back, restraining the truth, holding it back. And he says, men without excuse. Paul's laying it out and talking about this wrath. and you, know, you can almost get the idea if you don't read further and understand more. Is that God's only answer? To sin. He's going to pour out his wrath. We are all doomed. Thankfully, the scriptures make it very, very clear. The answer is no. That's not the only answer. God will actually use removing his hand of blessing for a season to draw people to himself. I mean, we see in the Old Testament in particular, God let his chosen people be taken captive and held hostage and, and all kinds of horrible things happen to them. But why? To draw them back to himself. Even today in nations where there seems to be ungodliness rampant in a nation. Pick one. You might want to start close to home. He may use that to draw people to himself. But he doesn't just use demonstrations of his present wrath. He woos people by his Holy Spirit. He woos them by his love. He is a loving, compassionate God goal is to draw people unto himself. Humanity needed a rescuer. Humanity needed a king. A king willing and able to step forward. One who knows all about us and loves us anyway. He does for us what he can't, we can't do for ourselves. And who is committed enough to each and every one of us to change us from the inside out. That's the kind of king we needed. In Isaiah, he says, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. We're going to go back to the prophet Isaiah right now. I want to give you a little background. And again, 
my mind couldn't help but compare maybe, maybe not to the, the degree of, of, of Isaiah's day, but the similarities that you could draw between where he was living and what was going on and maybe where we're living and what's going on. And I'm not talking Democrat or Republican. I'm not talking, I'm talking at all. I'm talking about a nation, a nation, the spiritual life, the spiritual place of a nation. In, a, in, in the time of Isaiah, when Isaiah is called by God to prophesy, if you read chapters 7 and 8 before you get to chapter 9 of Isaiah, you're going to see him talking about the, the nation of Judah, the southern part of God's chosen people. And there's a king, and his name is Ahaz. And he became king when he was only 20 years old, approximately 20 years old. And the four previous kings of Judah had been pretty good guys, pretty godly guys, his father, his grandfather. And he becomes king, and everything changes. He is an ungodly, evil king. Immediately, they start building idols and worshiping other gods. And Isaiah, at the time, he's watching this take place, and he's watching, watching the nation of Judah being attacked or facing a kind of a two-pronged crisis in the nation. One is a moral crisis, an internal crisis, a spiritual rot taking place around him, corrupting God's people. And they were facing an external crisis, other nations preparing to attack the nation of Judah. And then they have this evil king, Ahaz, this young king, Ahaz. And Isaiah is called to prophesy, and he spends his time in chapters 7 and 8. And you can read about Ahaz in, in the books of Kings and Chronicles, but here we see enough to say that poor Isaiah, he's to step up and start declaring, this is what God's going to do to you. This is what's going to happen. This is how bad it's going to get because you've abandoned God. You've turned away from him. And he goes on like this. I'm going to read in Isaiah chapter 9, just a moment, starting at verse 1. But first, with Isaiah's prophecy, we see what's the idolatry is taking place. He's going to not listen to God and trust God. He's instead going to make a, some kind of alliance with the king of Assyria who is evil, but he's powerful. And his nation has been conquering nations. And Ahaz says, God, whatever he's doing, that's what I should do because look how he's doing. He's doing great. Well, what a part of what they did was child sacrifice. According to Scripture, it looks like Ahaz himself as king sacrificed one of his children in the fires to the idol Moloch. That's how evil it was. The idolatry, the sexual immorality was rampant. Fear and anger amongst the people. Depressed. Panic. Fear. God tells Isaiah, you're going to prophesy all this stuff. And then when he comes to chapter 9, it's like all of a sudden... God gives him a different set of glasses, prophetic glasses, and he sees beyond all of this wrath and punishment and darkness and evil. And he starts in Isaiah or chapter 9, verse 1, this way. Nevertheless, 
Nevertheless, it's been so bad, but nevertheless, God is going to do something. And he says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation, increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke and the burden that had been on them. The bar across your shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boots used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. They will be fuel for the fire. Isaiah is describing a great change of direction for sinners. Fears, the futility, the bondage, the guilt, it's all going to be taken away. A joy in God is going to overtake them. All that resisted and rebelled against God. It's going to be a complete victory that will come upon the people. To come upon the people who deserve the worst from a perfect and holy God. How will this come about? How is this going to happen? He had spent so much time prophesying what God had told him to prophesy about the results of their sin. And all of a sudden, what we call chapter 9, verse 1, it's switched a complete 180. How is it going to happen? Verse 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time and on forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. God had a plan. When Isaiah writes those words in chapter six, or verse 6 of chapter 9, prophesying about this amazing king that he's going to send, he's revealing, beginning to un- reveal his plan of salvation. God's plan. And what we discover is God's plan is a person. His plan of salvation is a person, Jesus. A messianic ruler like the world has never, ever seen before. Both human, a child is born, and divine, a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders. He will rule his king. Four titles give us a picture of his character. Now, this will be fulfilled in its completeness or its fullness when Jesus comes back to reign. But the kingdom of God is one of those things that it's here, but it's coming. He is our king. He is our rescuer. He's the one that was God's plan. Briefly looking at those four titles, Wonderful Counselor. Sometimes you see a a comma in between them. I look at it as Wonderful Counselor. When I look at it as Wonderful Counselor and I look at what those words mean in the Greek language, we see wonderful meaning almost beyond our imagination, extraordinarily, extraordinary, marvelous, an advisor and a counselor. 
when you think about that, in every situation, in every challenge. I mean, can you imagine if I could tell you that you can, no matter what your problem is, no matter what your problem is, the personal relationships, no matter, and you want to go to a counselor, I can guarantee a counselor that will give you an absolutely perfect answer that will work. He's the wonderful counselor. That's what that means. In every situation, no matter what the situation is, no matter what the challenge is, he knows exactly what needs to be done. Exactly what needs to be done. And it's always going to be a plan that is wonderful. A wonderful counselor. We need to understand that there's a word that's omniscient. If you're not familiar with the word omniscient, what does it mean? It's all-knowing. Our wonderful counselor is the all-knowing God. He's the wonderful counselor, but he's also mighty God. That word mighty there is translated a few different ways, but you could translate it powerful. I like this one, heroic, valiant God. A warrior. Our wonderful counselor is the mighty God. Not only is omniscient, all-knowing, he is also all-powerful God. Character being revealed to us. Meaning no matter what that plan of action is, no matter what that solution is to our problem, our wonderful counselor has the power to see it through to its conclusion. Because he is all-powerful. He's the everlasting father, a father forever. You know, he'll be the best father there ever was. Ever will be. Forever. He will always give us the great counsel. He'll have the power to fulfill it. And he'll do it in love. He'll be loving and compassionate, self-sacrificing. In Psalms 103, verse 13, it says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. This king that the father sent, this plan of salvation, this person, counselor, mighty God, Everlasting Father. And the fourth one we see here is the Prince of Peace. Prince, the ruler of Shalom. You remember a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, we, we talked about the peace of God, that it is, it is not a peace similar to the world's peace. It's not a peace that's dependent upon circumstance or situation. It's a peace that comes from God in us. It's an internal peace that we can have knowing who we are once again in Christ and knowing who He is as a wonderful counselor, the mighty God, forever our Father. He's going to conquer, but He's going to conquer the hearts of people with His love. Holy Spirit, wooing, even before, while we were yet sinners, He loved us so much that he reveals himself to us in these different ways. 
peace that doesn't rely on ourselves or our circumstances. God knew what we needed because he knew the problem. He has the solution. It's Jesus. It's God, the king that will rescue us from his wrath. and Ultimately, from the wrath of hell, where his wrath will be poured out like waves forever on those who reject him. Not just the wrath that might be in the present with him withholding his grace or his blessing or his protection, but there is a wrath for those who die without accepting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We needed someone who's willing to step forward and do it on our behalf. Jesus went to the cross knowing what was coming. He understood fully what was going to happen. Even his anguish and agony in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before, he knew where he was headed. He was going to go. He was willing to go, and he was able to go on our behalf. And it should overwhelm us when you think about, in relationships, how many have ever said something like, boy, if you only knew, you wouldn't want to be around me. If you only knew the whole story, you wouldn't like me or want anything to do with me. Most of us can probably relate to that. There are those things that we'd like to keep real dark, secret, hidden place. And then the enemy keeps throwing them back up into our mind. Well, here we have a God who loves us so much. He knows everything about us, and he loves you anyway. Amazing thing to contemplate, meditate on. Doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And doing for us what no one else could do for us. Some people are working so hard to earn their way to heaven. What a hopeless situation to find yourself in. There's nothing you can do to earn your way to heaven. You don't deserve it. Never could. But God's grace and mercy, he had a plan named Jesus. It makes a way for us to do what we could never do for ourselves. When we accept the gift of salvation into our lives, surrender our lives to him, he begins that work from the inside out, changing us into all that he intends for us to be. That's the kind of king we needed. And that's the character of the king that he sent, our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, our everlasting father, prince of peace. If you're here or you're watching online and you have never accepted the simple gift, Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. No cost. Nothing you can do to earn it. The only present that really changes everything and means anything in the long term. You can accept him right now. Acknowledging the gospel message that Paul so desires to share with the world. That we're sinners deserving of the wrath of God, but God had a plan. And he loved us so much that he sent his son, Jesus. God came in the flesh. 
in the form of a man, Jesus. He lived on this earth for about 33 years as all God and all man. Lived a sinless life because he had to be a sinless sacrifice to die for our sins. No one else could do it. And he did it willingly because he loves us. He went to the cross. He died for our sins so we don't have to experience the wrath of God. And he says, I've done it all for you. He was raised from the dead, showing us and demonstrating for us the resurrection power of God, confirming that that is in our future if we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And he says, here, it's free. I paid the price in full, a price you can never pay. It's yours, free. Any of us, and I've done this before, I remember many, many times when I said something similar to this, probably in words that I wouldn't use here this morning. But there's plenty of time. I got a lot of things I want to do and experience. And then... I'll accept the gift. We don't know. We don't know when we'll take our last breath. We don't know when our rejection of God brings us to that place where God turns us over. So my encouragement would be, receive the gift of Jesus. Right now today, if you haven't, pray in your homes, in your living rooms. We can pray here. We will pray. Let's pray. If you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, quite simple prayer, but the commitment to that prayer in your heart changes everything. Father, I pray right now, if there be anybody here who's never accepted Jesus, and that's their desire, that right now, Father, you would draw them to yourself that they would confess their need for a Savior and acknowledge that Jesus is that Savior and that they would receive the gift of salvation purchased by His death, His shed blood, proven acceptable by the resurrection. We would surrender and lay down our life for God, for Jesus. And I pray, Father, for those of us that may have done that a long time ago, that we would have it at the forefront of our mind, the amazing gift and the amazing God, the amazing King that we have and worship. But we would also remember the amazing responsibility we have that we would be like Paul and say, I am eager to preach the gospel and I am not ashamed of that gospel. For it is the power of salvation unto those who would believe. So, Father, I pray as this Christmas season unfolds in our own lives that we have opportunities, even in a closed-down COVID season, that we have those opportunities to share the good news of the gospel with Jesus and demonstrate his amazing love, that we can share the hope that's in us with the world that's looking for that hope. Pray you'd watch over us, protect us, keep us in your care. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.